All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Welcome back to part two of today's enthralling show about this very important part of our modern history that we've called an atom bomb for Herr Bormann. And we've covered the atom bomb, but uh, Bormann, his escape scenario, uh, we have a lot of stories, you know, we, we could start about, you obviously know about the evidence that he's been, he was into banking, uh, not just from 42, but we have signatures of him from, I think, 45, 46, all the way up to the 70s. Yeah. yeah. So let alone those circumstantial evidence, let's look at the hard evidence. You have the skull and the skull. I don't know how many times his skull has popped up. <laughs> and you make a very good case in your book. But uh, before you elaborate on that, did you include that skull that popped up in the 90s that showed clay from Paraguay? Um, you know, I didn't include it. I saw it came to my attention as I was finishing the book and at, at one time. I did have it in in there, but I took it back out simply because it just didn't hold water enough to even try and, and defend it. <laughs> well, they say that they proved the DNA match, but then this, uh, the – Are you talking about – now, there was a, the skull that they found at uh, uh, Lairder's train station bridge that was supposed to have been the skull that was Martin Borman's buried with Dr. Stumpfeger. Mm. And then I, it's been a while since I dealt with that other skull. Uh, I don't remember the details on that. Anyway, the the um, man, I wish I could remember. I didn't deal with that specifically, and I can't remember exactly why. I think it might have just come too late in the deal. But it also it just felt like it was so it, it was discovered so late that it was going to be hard to to with all the everything else going on to really make a case for it one way or the other. Well, uh, I, I think like many others, it's a plant. Uh, in order to shut down the discussion. Yeah, and that's how I felt. That's how I felt about the original skull, too. Mm. Um, and I, I guess my feeling was the original skull had so much of the of, of the mind share of everybody that trying to put another plant in it just kind of emphasized that they were just doing plants and to try and address one more other than say it was there, which I think I did, wasn't fruitful because it just didn't hold water to me. Right. The original skull... Do you want to talk about that now or did you want to? Yeah, I just want you to make a case for why the mainstream, simply debunk the mainstream notions about him dying. On the skull. You, you can choose what you want to mention. There's so much <laughs> stuff in your book, we can't cover everything. Yeah, there is. But you can give us a few examples. Okay. I think the, the main two or three things I bring up, the first one is that uh, there's a guy by the, uh-oh, did I lose his name? There was a, a guy in the CIA James, hmm, can't remember his last name. Now all of a sudden, he was a he worked for the CIA and he was McGovern. No, uh, McGovern was it McGovern. Yeah, it was McGovern. James McGovern. Okay, yeah, thank you. Um, he was working. He was trying to track down whether Borman was really buried there at Letter Station Bridge. He was, he was assigned to figure out what happened to Borman. Now it's hard to know what his real agenda was, given the CIA's involvement in all of this. But one of the things he reported was that 
the KGB, in, in fact, as I re- recall, I think I'm remembering correctly, the, the KGB provided to him documents that showed that the uh, reported remains of Martin Borman at Lerder Station Bridge right within days after the war were supposed to have been discovered by the Russian army when they came through that area. Mm. And they ordered the postmaster at Lerder Station to have Borman's body, quote-unquote Borman's body, and Stumfager's body buried there. Um, when they were burying the bodies, they found in one of the uh, the jacket pockets of the smaller man. Stumpfinger was like six foot eight or something. He was huge and he was crazy. The smaller man was was that's a sideline. The smaller man they was claimed to be Borman, and they had this this um, diary that was supposed to be Borman's. Mm. And when the KGB saw the diary, they said, "Oh, we need to go back and exhume that body and see if it's really Borman's." And they pulled it up and took it somewhere else did forensics testing on it, and presumably, I got to believe they buried it or did whatever they did with it, mm-hmm. burn it, whatever they did, wherever they were. I don't think it doesn't make sense that they brought it back to Lerder Station and buried it back where it was. So It wasn't even buried. They, they were lying peacefully on the train tracks, right? Yeah, it wasn't even buried there, <laughs> according to this uh, KGB report. So, But sure enough, uh, later on, 20 years later, we're talking about in the early 70s, they're, they decide somebody decides that they're going to try and dig up Borman's remains or, that were reported to have been there, and they tried digging them up. And they, the German state has spent a, a considerable amount of money and time on that location, excavating, trying to find those bodies, and didn't find them. So they gave up. Mm. And then, virtually in the same week or two that Manning and that I think it was Paul Manning's book came out, it might have been Ferrego's book came out, saying that you know Borman lived the initial version actually it wasn't his book they both manning serialized his book in the new york times first and so that information was coming out and when, as it was coming out all of a sudden they said uh-oh we need to find this body to prove that it's not there mm. but we've already dug for it we can't find it well lo and behold that same week or two weeks later some construction crew that's digging around there comes up with this skeleton and this skull and everybody's like oh lo and behold it's mormon <laughs> and so they take the skull and they go they go do forensics tests, quote unquote, and they come back and say, "Yeah, it's Borman." Mm. And except that some somebody says, "Well, it can't be Borman because he was known to have had this denture, uh, dentition characteristic." And they're like, "Oh, oh!" And then the skull disappears, and then a year later it comes back, and here's Borman's skull. This skull is well, the, the dent- <laughs> it's just bizarre. The, the skull. Good, I'm amateurs. <laughs> yeah, according to Manning, the skull changed physical characteristics four times, and it was supposed to be the same skull. Wow. So we have we have some serious issues just in the provenance of the skull itself. It's disappeared. It's not supposed to be there in the first place because the Russians dug it up and buried it somewhere else. Mm. And then and then they come back and they have it. They can't find it where it's supposed to be. Then they can find it where it's not supposed to be. But guess what? It's not doesn't fit, so they keep changing the skull. Mm. So there's all kinds of questions about the provenance of the skull. I don't think if you took it into a court of law and tried to prove anything, it would hold muster in a, mm-hmm. in a chain of evidence hearing. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't, although you don't know it's lawyers nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and so so you got this whole problem. Well, then they decided, well, we'll solve the problem by having it um, DNA tested. Well, DNA back in the – this was later, I think, in the late 
80s or early 90s, I guess it was, that they decided to DNA test it. Mm-hmm. And they come back, they have it for a few years, and they come back and say, yeah, it's Borman's, the DNA proves it's Borman's. But they never released the test. Right. They never, to this day, as far as I know, they've never released the DNA tests on Borman. And they were really primitive tests at that time. Mm. Well, there's a few issues even with that. The first one being Borman was responsible. Everybody knows about Hitler's double. They created a, a double for Hitler for security purposes. And he was the one supposedly that was found in the cistern in the bunker after the war proved that Borman was dead. But Borman was the one who told Heinrich Mueller, the head of the Gestapo who we were talking about earlier, to create the double for Hitler. Mm. There's no reason in the world, and there is there is evidence from a couple of different fronts, Paul Manning being one, the other one being... Uh, Stevenson? Uh, I think Stevenson mentioned it, too, now that you mentioned it, but the General uh, Reinhard Goering, uh, uh, not Goering, Reinhard G- Galen. Galen. His head of intelligence said that Borman had had created a double. And he also, his head of intelligence also said that the skull was a fraud. Um, so, and the point I was trying to get to with the Hitler double is the way they made the double was they found a cousin of Hitler's who looked like Hitler yeah. and did the fine trim on him and, and had Hitler. Well, if Borman's the one that had him create a double for Hitler and he wants him to create a double for him and finding a cousin worked, wouldn't they go find a cousin? And in fact, exactly in Schweinestad or Borman will, yeah. if you like. <laughs> yeah. And there was a lot of um, people in the town that Borman was from that had a lot of his characteristics, according yeah. to that second guy I mentioned. I'm sorry, no, to um, one of your sources. They can find that in the book. That's okay. They're all yeah. yeah. Anyway, so they found a cousin. So even if the KGB story isn't true and the skull they've dug up next to Stumpfager is actually the body that was buried next to Stumpfager, there's every reason to believe, and I go through it in the book to, to some detail, that Borman's double was who was left in the bunker when Borman escaped. And so and Stumpfager took Borman to Lairder Station Bridge, and that's where their bodies were both found. Mm. Um, so when I say Borman, I'm talking about the Borman double now. Yeah. So if Borman's double is actually a cousin and they're doing preeminent DNA testing on it, it's not a bad, you know, if they find any kind of a marker that matches Borman, they could say, hey, this is Borman, you know, because they're not expecting it to be a relative. They're thinking it's Borman. Mm-hmm. But it was a, uh, his double was probably most likely a cousin or relative of some sort that would have had some markers that would have registered as, as Borman. Yeah, because you mentioned in the book that there was reports of this, uh, that I humorously refer to the Schweinestad yeah. or Borman will, yeah. that there was a lot of Bormans walking around, the people looking like him. Right, yeah. The, the, and you don't have that with Hitler. No. Probably a harder hunt to find uh, another Hitler. Right. But, uh, but, and Borman looks so... Hitler has more specific characteristics, whereas Borman looks as grey and square as he, you know, as he appears. I would disagree with you on that. Okay, Borman had some pretty distinguishing characteristics in his posture and his build, and uh, and if you look at yeah. study a, a a picture of a photo of him, he's got a pretty distinctive. There's a lot the nose uh, nose. Up. That's that's kind of an immaterial argument, but my sense is that. Uh, Anyway, so, everybody has a double. There's a double yeah. of you and me around too. So, oh, that's sad to think about. <laughs> anyway, at least for me. <laughs> so, if they had the, um, but so anyway, it's not inconceivable that the the body buried next to Stumpfager 
was Borman's double, which was a relative of Borman, and therefore DNA markers would register that. Yeah. Um, everybody knows in the traditional history that when uh, when the war was coming to the end, Hitler's dog was poisoned, Goring had his children poisoned, and he and his wife Magda were poisoned. Goebbels' dog was killed? No, Hitler's, uh, oh, Goebbels, yeah. Well, Hitler's dog Blondie was killed too, as well as yeah. Brown, Brown's. They were all poisoned, and they were all poisoned by Doctor Stumpfinger. Right. Okay, that's part of the traditional history. So here we have Borman escaping with Doctor Stumpfinger, and both of them ending up dead. And Arthur Axman, who was the head of the Hitler Youth, who has escaped with the, them in the bunker, but in a different party, said he came across Stumpfinger and Borman's bodies lying there. They supposedly been killed in battle but he said they were both lying there side by side reposed not an injury on either one of them and and it just doesn't match the description of how you it smells like a plant doesn't it yeah so they lie peacefully with the hands right. down along their side yeah. right yeah and so it just not a scratch on them yeah it doesn't make sense so, so there's a, a deal. I, you know, my belief, what I think happened when I try and follow through in the book, is that that Borman had a double, Stumpfinger took him out, and after poisoning all those other people, his his last main person to poison was Borman's double to hide the traces, and then and then Stumpfinger poisoned himself, as did several others, General Krebs and was it Krebs? Anyway, several over assassinate. Yeah. You also write that. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's what I what I think happened now. There's also one last thing on the DNA, since there's no chain of evidence, you know, that the, the provenance is valid or pristine. It is not hard in my mind to conceive that that skull or the skull you were talking about from Paraguay. We know that Borman escaped and we know he spent a good part of his time in South America. And it's not at all impossible in my mind that after he died, exactly. they took his real skull and took it back. And that's the one they, they buried there, and that's the one they tested. No, that, that's the point with the Paraguayan skull. Yeah. Because because they say, hey, we found it in Germany, case closed. Yeah. And then they didn't then account the, for the fact that there was... The soil in it was yeah, Paraguayan. Exclusive, right. yeah. Right. And and there's a Dr. Sonia who's a dental technician, a dental forensics expert. Mm -hmm. He checked, he looked at the... Records, there weren't any real records of Borman's dentition remaining, but a, a technician who was supposed to have worked on him did, did the sketch of him. Sonyai looked at the sketch and the evidence of what Borman's mouth was supposed to look like and the dentition in the skull. And at first he said, yeah, it's Borman. And then he turned around and went back to, to Willie Brandt, the head of the German chancellor at the time, and said, no, I'm reversing my opinion. It's not Borman. Mm. And I think what happened there is if it was Borman's skull that he lived after the war and then when, after he died, they took it back and turned it in and said, here's a skull. This proves he was here the whole time. Mm. Well, Borman lived another 20 or 30 years from all from what I can tell. Um, any person that's living at that age is going to have more dentition, dental work done. Right. And so Sonier is looking at the skull and he's saying, well, I've got this is definitely Borman stuff, but there's other stuff that's not here. Well, it's not there because it was put on after. Right. Mm. So it just the evidence for Borman dying in Berlin, in, in my opinion, is is not only weak, but fraudulent. Mm. 
And I have to say, people, uh, Carter goes very much into details about these things. And there's so many arguments, so many points, we can't even begin to cover it here in an interview. So read his book if you want to see the details and be convinced. And the same can be said for the so-called uh, uh, death scenario. Uh, I mean, just to poke fun of it, at one point he's both outside a tank and inside a tank, and then he's blown, uh, flying in the air, and then... Uh, you know, from a bomb, yeah. and then he uh, lies peacefully far away with his crazy doctor, without any damage on him right. <laughs> on the trail road. I mean, that's so. Yeah. And th- this is typical of these guys who got away. You see the same thing about Kamler. You see the same thing about um, Mini Borman. What's his name again? Uh, Gestapo. Uh, Heinrich Müller. Müller. Yeah. yeah. And you say this even the same thing about Hitler. So. I think that's a telling sign when you have these conflicting reports right, yeah. that just don't match. Yeah, and the, the the general public wants to take them. Well, there's so many proofs that he's dead so many different ways. That means he must be dead, but it actually proves <laughs> the opposite. It actually proves that there's a whole bunch of stories that he's not that they put out there to try and say he's not dead. But yeah. but you're right. There's a lot of detail in the book we haven't covered that is just more and more evidence piled layer on layer that yeah. that indicates. Uh, yeah, I, I won't say that there's a smoking gun, but the circumstantial evidence is so deep and profound and, and all-encompassing that it. I don't think anybody who looks at the circumstantial evidence, particularly when they look at it through the filter of who's given the evidence and what was it, did they have an agenda, mm-hmm. or the filter of how many different versions of, of evidence, what aligns and what doesn't align, and what, when you look at the evidence for different versions of evidence that comes from totally different sources that are unbeknownst to each other, and you compare them, the evidence for Bormann dying at Berlin does not hold up, but it's very concrete for him surviving. The evidences, the the dates, the instances, Mm -hmm. particular articles, you just look at them and go, yeah, "Yeah," you know, he survived. Yeah, and I'd say even if there's not a, a smoking gun in terms of a single piece of evidence i say when you put it together it's a smoking cannon yeah that's kind of my point is there may not be a smoking gun but there's a barrage of <laughs> a barrage of cannonballs that are hard to ignore right and another thing is how can we take seriously these so-called dna tests when they refuse to to release it in your research you you've uncovered a, a pattern when it comes to Bowman, and that is the very fact that you know, sometimes you can say that you, you've heard the expression, of course, that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? Right. But I'll go further. I'd say that when there's systematic absence, then that in itself is evidence. Because we see here when it comes to, oh, we, we won't uh, release the DNA tests. Oh, 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 we always come with a new skull every time. You know, the timing here is, is very right. suspicious. And you found the same thing in terms of documents, didn't you? I did very much. I'm glad you brought that up. It was really interesting. I, I went to the, uh, the United States archives seven different times. I went uh, at least seven different times. I went four or five to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and I went a couple, three times to the archives in East Point, Georgia, which is a southeast uh, regional archives for the nation, which is where Oak Ridge documentation is kept. And that's where I mentioned earlier I was the first one to open the box for for some of that really seminal documentation. Mm. I opened I ordered 38 boxes and only four of them had their classification seals broken. All the 34 others had never been opened by anybody. So all those historians who say they 
they did their homework. Um, <laughs> they didn't look at the seminal documentation. They just went with what other people told them, which, right. in my opinion, isn't isn't serious history. No. I'm going to get yelled at for that probably, but but yeah. So in all my visits to the archives, I only found missing documents twice. Now, both times they were a group of missing documents that were related to each other, and both times they were they were salient to critical information. One of them was relative to, since we're talking about Borman, to Borman. There was, according to the index cards in the index room for Borman, there was a series of documents and reports talking about Borman's apartment, where he lived. He was the most powerful man in Europe, all this stuff after the war. It's in the index cards. Mm. But you know what? I tried to get documents pulled, and uh, they weren't there. And I went to the – now, usually, if they're, if the documents are in the index card and the documents are – you pull them and they're in the file, if they're not in the file, there's a slip sheet that says these do- – there's one of two things. There's either a slip sheet that says these documents are being used by somebody else, mm. or there's a slip sheet that says these documents are still restricted due to national security. Mm. That's the three things that happen. You get the documents. You get – Somebody else has them. You get national security. And these particular documents, and there were multiple documents, basically proving, according to the index cards, that Borman was still alive, they were not there. But neither were any slip cards. So I went to the archivist, and I said, you know, these documents aren't here. And he says, well, yeah, they're there. Or somebody's got them on. I, I told him there's no slip cards. And he was really perplexed. And he started. He didn't believe you at first. Yeah, he didn't believe me. And I said, "Are you sure?" And I said, "Yeah, I went through. I not only went through the file, but I went through the entire box twice. They're not in there." And then he tried to say it was misplaced. And then he tried to say, "Yeah, well, somebody must have misplaced it." Uh, that's really hard to do if you've worked in the in the archive. You, if it's misplaced, I shouldn't say it's hard to do. There, uh, one of them made the national news back in the Clinton years that somebody snuck some document, important documents out of the archive. It can be done if you know what you're doing, but you got to intend to do it. You can't. It, they just don't get misplaced. Yeah, you know? because you described uh, you describe how it works. You can only take out yeah. one paper at the time. They have a very discreet process. You can take out more than one paper. You can take out one file at a time. So you get a box. At that time, I don't know what the rules are. It's been several years. But at that time, you could take, I believe it was up to five boxes at a time. Mm. But you could only open one box at a time. If they found you with two boxes open, they'd be on your case. And they have people just walk around watching to make sure you don't do this. Mm-hmm. And and once you open a box, you can only take one file out at a time. Right. And once you open a file, you have multiple documents in there, but you can't take any more than one document out of a file at a time. Right. That's, and so that keeps them from getting lost. So. For, for multiple documents to be missing, actually from different files, but related to the same topic, the same very germane topic about did Martin Borman survive the war or not, mm. uh, that's, that's unheard of. It's just it's very impossible. And not only that, but like you said yourself, this isn't something that people went queuing up to look at this. I mean, if, yeah. if people were browsing through it every day, uh, you might maybe, but yeah. Anyway, and I had a similar situation in the in the records of uh, transporting of enriched uranium from Oak Ridge to to Los Alamos. Yeah, the U-boats, right? Yeah, we're going to end with that U-boat story. U two three. Uh, that was a little different story, but anyway. Oh, okay. So yeah, there sometimes the lack of evidence is evidence itself, especially when it's that yeah. pointed on a focused on a particular subject. Of all, I mean, I. I went through tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of documents, Jeez. and to just have to just have 
those, uh, I think it was three or four documents from Borman and three or four on the Oak Ridge side mm. re- related to each other in context, missing of, of all the other stuff I went through. It's just, it just impossible for me, totally impossible. With somebody, they were removed for a purpose. Yeah. And yeah, and you were even looking for for taking heed of the misplacement. You were trying to find them yeah. in other. Yeah. Yeah. No. So so we. This is just an example. So it, it stinks. The whole thing stinks. But when we consider, you know, the scenario you're laying out here, you and and others like Farago and Stevenson and those guys, it doesn't stink anymore. It becomes obvious because we have one of the biggest power player in the post war one of the richest, uh, he, he controls uh, a huge yeah. power base, uh, money base, corporations, uh, network, and all that stuff. Yeah. But let's let's go now to, we have to speed up here, uh, let's go to his escape route. Let's now just be content that we've uh, debunked what we have time to debunk of the mainstream and start to look at the alternative scenario. And you have sure. extremely interesting uh, info when it comes to the escape scenario too. So, and, and before you do, let me just say, I know that when you wrote the book, you believed that Hitler died, and you maybe still believe that, which in that case, we differ in opinion, because I'm convinced more and more, I can't be 100%, but it looks to me, the same scenario and case you're making for Bormann can actually be made for Hitler. And it seems to me that if you want to if you want to flee you can't put all your eggs in the same basket i mean today even if obama is flying somewhere his vice president is not in the same plane this is just basic yeah. sense yeah. and the same thing has to be said for the escape scenario so i have a comment uh, after you laid out this about this regarding hitler so but let's let, lay that to rest for now let's look at bormann and, and Mueller then so what's your take on on how this must have gone down um as as you mentioned there's quite a bit of detail on the book and i'm just going to try and hit the tops of the waves and sometimes i I get a little deeper just because it's my interest but stop me if i go too far i'll try to guide you gently into the big picture yes (laughs) (laughs) fundamentally well number one we talked about borman as just a master pragmatist and always planning and always had multiple plans it's in part of the traditional history that borman went through extensive efforts to escape okay Mm. uh it's all over the traditional history which is his proclivity and you would have expected it and but the surprise is that the traditional history thinks he didn't succeed given all efforts that he made Mm. but obviously he so he has this whole vast economy sitting there waiting for him, but he's got to get clear of Germany in order to execute it, to follow his plan. And um, so it gets a little complex, and I, I'm trying to figure out this way to, to net it out in the simplest terms. So Bor- at one point, right at, the, uh, right at the end, I think on April 29th, Hitler ordered Bormann to take his political manifesto and his will to Dernitz, because Dernitz was going to buy Bormann's doing, by the way. Bormann had, had unseated both Goering and Himmler as next in line. And, and the, we go through the details on, on that in the book, but it's that's easily found in the traditional history anyway. Right. Um, so so Bormann was ordered by Hitler to take his stuff and go to Dernitz. Um, at one point, Hitler's personal pilot, a guy by the name of Hans Bauer, had a plan and they were going to fly... Uh, Hitler out, and you may. I won't go into the Hitler 
uh, whether Hitler lived or died, other than to say I am not convinced one way or the other, frankly. I've, mm -hmm. I've looked at it. I started following that chain and then decided it wasn't in my scope. But I wasn't – No, but we know more now than yeah. we went back when you – That's probably true. I haven't looked at it in a long time. Okay. But anyway, according to traditional history, Hitler himself said, no, I'm not leaving. I'm staying here in Berlin. If I'm going to survive, my people have – my armies have to save me. But I want Bormann to take my, my will and my political manifesto. Bauer, instead of flying me, you fly Bormann to Dernitz. Okay. No, and that's that's in character for Hitler. I believe that was his yes. his conviction. Yeah. Understand? Yeah. And so I believe that was kind of the foundation of the plan for what was happening. Mm. Um, what ended up happening is Bauer. Let me back up a step. Prior to this, a few days prior to this, uh, when Goering was unseated, Robert Ritter von Grime was flown in to Berlin to for Hitler to put in charge of the Luftwaffe to replace Goering. Well, von Grime, this is a really interesting kind of, it's not a side story, but it's a, it's a, something most people don't know. There was a lady by the name of Hannah Reich, who was kind of uh, Germany's Amelia Earhart. She was a great pilot, aviatrix. Mm -hmm. She, um, she did a lot of firsthand things. She, they actually put a cockpit, I mentioned earlier, they put a cockpit in a V1. She actually flew the V1, the first V1, test piloted the first V1. She was the first person ever to fly a helicopter inside a building. Yeah, we cover her in all the shows. Yeah, she's a fascinating. Hitler loved her, put a medal on her, yeah. only woman. Twice. Yeah. Gave her the Iron Cross twice. Yeah, right. So Hannah Reich was with von Grime. Von Grime, Reich was von Grime's mistress. And they flew in in a Fiesler Storch, which is a slow, or a short landing script runway airplane, capable of landing and taking off in very short distances. But it only could take two people. Mm. Anyway, so Hannah Reich was flying in with von Grime and they got hit by shrapnel and von Grime was injured and Reich took over the plane and landed the plane and they took uh, Grime in and they and they bandaged him up and they stayed a few days while he healed a little bit before he got and, and this was just a few days before the bunker was yeah, taken this was just three or four days before the bunker and, mm. and the, the last massive escape I say massive there wasn't that many people but the last escape mm. so and about the time Hitler was saying you know Bauer fly Bormann to Dernitz, Grime and, and Reich were getting ready to fly out, and the case was made, hey, number one, Bauer didn't want to leave Hitler. He was a died-in-the-wall Nazi. He said, I don't want to leave you. I want to stay here. Grime and, and Reich are getting ready to fly out. Why can't they take Bormann? And so the plan went over to, to have them take him. Mm -hmm. So, and Hannah Reich, in her own, in two or three different interviews, and in a book she wrote afterward, talked about how she flew Von Grime out in a Fiesler Storch. She didn't talk about, she didn't say there were any other passengers, but she, but she talked about that going on on the morning of, uh, at dusk on the, I'm sorry, at dawn on the uh, morning of May 1st. Now, Stalin at Potsdam after the war told Harry Hopkins that his KGB he didn't say KGB. His agents had observed, definitely observed, a, a man, a bandaged man and a woman with two other men fly out uh, from the Tiergarten, which was the landing strip they used from uh, from the bunker. Mm. It was a big boulevard. Flew out from the Tiergarten at dawn on May the 1st. So we have two totally different descriptions of 
an event that happened at the same time with the same kind of plane with at least two of the passengers that fit descriptions because he said there was a managed man and a woman. Now, how many, number one, how many women do you think were flying in and out of Hitler's headquarters under those conditions at that time? I can only think of one, yeah. Eva Braun. Po- yeah, possibly, but it makes more sense given the... But if you say a bandaged man, it has to be Hannah Reich and him. Right, it has to be von Grunt. Mm. And so Reich doesn't talk about any passengers, but the description of the two people that are on the plane that she says were on the plane fit perfectly two people that got on this, basically the, sa- the same plane at the same time and, and left the tear garden. But they also had two other people in there. Well, obviously, if it's a secret plan to get Bormann secretly out, mm-hmm. they're not going to say. The other guy was Heinrich Mueller because Heinrich Mueller was Bormann's security man. And he was also part a big part of, of Bormann's escape plan. Can I just ask, uh, we know Bormann isn't the biggest person in terms of physics. What about the Mueller? Was he a small person too? Um, yeah, I think he was actually. The pictures I can picture I, I too think that. And if you have a plane for two people yeah. and you're cramming two extra people in, it helps that they're not the biggest persons. Yeah, there, and there's a couple other details that go along with that. There's only two seats, but there's a cargo space behind the seats. Mm. So, the, and the plane is built to take two people plus cargo. Well, I don't know how many, you know, 100 pounds of cargo, 200 pounds right. of cargo. I don't know, but you put two people in the back there and you've got 300 pounds. It's a little overweight, but it's not that much overweight if you're counting on carrying cargo in it, right? Yeah. One of the interesting things that I believe was Hannah, I'm pretty sure it was Hannah Wright said was that as she was trying to take off, now this is an airplane that normally can take off as I recall, it could land in 60 yards and it could take off in like 175 yards, mm. but it went the full length of the tear garden and barely cleared the statuary on the top of the Brandenburg Gate. And, it, and we're talking about like 900 meters for that plane to get up enough speed and get up high enough to clear that. And to a European audience, um, it's supposed to be able to take off in 40 meters, right? Or 60 meters? Yeah, that sounds about well. I think I read 60 yards, and so that would be uh, 40 meters, 40. Yeah, 40 meters. Somewhere in that yeah. neighborhood. And I may be mistaking yards for meters. In any, it's kind of, well, check, people can check your book for these details. Yeah, yeah, it's material. The difference between the yards and meters and how many it is when you talk about, you know, even if it was 100 meters compared to 900 meters, you know, it's immaterial. Mm-hmm. The the plane should have been up in the air long before it got to the Brandenburg Gate if it was if it was not overloaded. Now the reason she gave was that she had a tailwind instead of a headwind. <laughs> I don't get that. Why didn't she just uh, do it the other way then? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, that was my thought, and and, and that's what most pilots would do. Yeah. Uh, I actually took the time to try and find a weather report for Berlin that morning, but oh. I couldn't. <laughs> oh, that would have been excellent. Yeah. So. Um, so obviously they were overloaded. Yeah. So it was obviously overloaded. And, we, you know, I mentioned earlier about what filters are you going to filter the, the information through? And one of the filters is what events do we have from two different sto- sources that are disconnected and how closely do they match? Mm-hmm. With the exception of how many people were on the plane, they match pretty darn closely. And the fact that the plane overshot its takeoff kind of goes to that it was overloaded. So, right. so, and, Borman had was was radioing Dernitz a lot. He was giving him all kinds of of information about what was and wasn't going on, which is really weird because Borman was not military. He was on the civilian side of things. No. Dernitz is military. Um, and the traditional history, I've read books and they're kind of like, it's kind of weird that Borman would do to Dernitz, but maybe he was the only guy, and, and they kind of blow it off as being an anomaly, but not an important anomaly. Mm. Well, let me tell you. 
it was an important anomaly if during its control a U-boat that Borman is planning on escaping on, right? Because exactly. <laughs> um, the next the next thing that Stalin told Hopkins was that that the next not the next day but a couple of days later, mysterious people. The wording is not exactly, but it's close to this. Mysterious people escaped from Hamburg on a large U-boat. One of those people was Borman. Mm. Okay. He identifies Borman as escaping on a large U-boat. Mm. So Borman, and, and one of the things that Reich says, they didn't actually fly straight to Plurin, which is where Dernitz was. Um, I take I, it back. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying, I know she ended up in the lost stand, uh, the, the lost, um, what they call it. Uh, Down at the readout. In the- yeah. But she didn't fly directly from Berlin there. Right. She flew presumably up to Plurin and then back down to southern Germany, mm. which made no sense at all. It was a dangerous trip. They were flying yeah. over Russian armies. It was, you know, and, and when, when asked why she did that, she said, well, we wanted to say goodbye to Admiral Dernitz. Right. <laughs> <laughs> why didn't she take a picnic in the park with Himmler while she was at it? <laughs> yeah. And did all the leaders of the Nazis want to visit each other to say goodbye when they're in the middle of this thing folding up on it. It just doesn't make sense. Somebody else No, they can hardly even communicate over the air. A different time she said, well they had been ordered by Hitler to arrest Himmler because he was trying to surrender to the Red Cross. And which doesn't make sense because they were sending them to to Dernitz's headquarters, an injured man and a woman to arrest Himmler when he was in the headquarters of Dernitz, who had all kinds of military around him who could have done it himself. I mean, none of the explanations make sense. The only yeah. explanation that makes sense is they went up there to deliver the package that she said they were delivering. The package just happened to be Martin Bormann with, with Hitler's documents and Heinrich Mueller. Mm-hmm. Now, Bormann didn't really want to show up in Plurin because he knew Dernitz would arrest him as soon as he saw him. Yeah. So he ended up going to Hamburg where – Indeed, I believe he he escaped on U-234. You remember the description of the U-boat was a large U-boat. Mm. U-234 was one of only two large U-boats left in the German Navy. All the rest had been sunk. There was about 20 of them made. What, some of them were fuel boats and some of them were mine layers, about 10 each, 10 to 12 each. Okay, so we have two left. So we have two left, and the, the other one was turned over to Japan in the Pacific and is over in the Pacific. So there's no other U-boat that mm. fits the description Stalin gave of a U-boat that Borman escaped in, except for U-234. Mm. So that's that side of the story. Now, the other side of the story is U-234 has been is supposed to be on its mad dash to Japan to turn over this technology, right? Yeah, let, let, let's recap here for people who, who are not buffs. Okay. We mentioned in part one this very important U-boat, which we're talking about now, U-234, which apparently held uh, the atomic bomb um, uh, secrets, you know, and researchers and all that. Not just secrets. Actually. So, But this is before that happened. This boat was in Norway at this point, right? The boat was in Norway. Yeah, it started yeah. in Norway, Christiansen. Yeah. Am I saying that? But, yeah, Christian Sand, we say. But you also say something very interesting. You say that it reports to have left twice. One from my hometown, Bergen, uh-huh. or Bergen, as we say, uh-huh. and then Christian Sand. Right. But uh, I don't know if uh, uh, is it natural to take that now, or is it more to say about the escape uh, part? In- Let's take it now. It's a good yeah. point because it, it's the beginning of a whole series of deceptions that Captain Fader, the, the captain of the U boat, right. initiates as he captains this 
U-boat across the Atlantic. Because what is his concern? What is the captain's concern? Let's say he gets orders from Dönitz or, or Bormann or both. Well, actually, that, that's a good point. We need to back up even further because, yeah. he, because he, you've obviously read the book. I, I, um, I wrote it, but I can't remember everything I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, but uh, another thing is you know everything already, but people who doesn't know the story needs to get it right. chronologically, right? So, yeah. yeah. Mm. Sometimes I just forget to assume. Um, well, that's your prerogative. You're the author. But uh, but anyway. So the, the boat is in Christiansand. Um, by the way, so the, I, talk, I mentioned the Japanese officers. They're out there on the boat. Wolfgang Hirschfeld, who is the chief radio operator, he witnesses the uh, these really, really heavy – crates and i say crates are not big enough to be crates they're nine inches square but they're so heavy that they have to have two poles put stuck through them and two uh sailors on each of these nine inch crates are carrying them and they're so heavy their knees are almost buckling so uh-huh. so something really heavy is in these crates because they're only nine inches square well uranium is the heaviest substance on earth right mm. okay so so they take these crates over Hang on, how big is this boat? Just help people understand how big it is. Oh, goodness. Um, they talk about displaced tons. The average uh, U-boat, uh, the Type 7, was about um, 7,000 uh, displaced tons. The next one, was, which was the Type 11 to 11B, I'm sorry, type 9. The type 9, type 11, they were a little larger. They are about 30% larger. We should probably call Harry Cooper now. <laughs> yeah. Harry can give you all of this in detail. And I, I had yeah. it I had at one time, but I, uh, the details are gone after a decade. But, but in, terms of, in terms of size, in terms of meter, for instance. it's uh, I don't know meters. Well, I know you are. But can you compare it with a boat? Like a, It's three times bigger than your average U-boat. It's pro- Yeah, it's, it's okay. approaching the size of a small ship. Right, not quite there, but it's, I'll say it's approaching the size of a small ship. Which, if you if you put a regular U-boat next to them, they're not insignificant, but they're not close, right? If that's helpful. So it's it's like the junkers of the U-boats. Yeah, mm. yeah, um, yeah. It's a big old honking thing. Mm. Okay. So, um, so we have have this poor captain. So this poor captain, he's got to figure out what he's going to do. He gets first of all get a uh, Hirschfeld. Let me finish a story about Herschel because yeah. this is just ties back to the original about the uranium being enriched on the U-boat. Mm-hmm. They take these boxes to the Japanese officers, and the Japanese officers paint in black paint on the side of the boxes. They paint U-235, which is the correct isotope for enriched uranium. Okay, so that's the, the uranium is not only stowed like enriched uranium, but it's actually labeled what you would expect enriched uranium to be labeled as. Now, and I just say that as another evidence that it was enriched. Mm. So Hirschfeld gets a communique from, it, it says, U-234, um, don't leave port until ordered, specifically ordered, and it's signed Fuhrer Headquarters. Okay, mm. so here's a U-boat that's not getting communications from Dernitz. It's getting it actually from Hitler's bunker wow. directly. Okay, mm. and then a few hours later, I believe it's on the same day, might have been the, the next day, um, Hirschfeld gets called to the commander of the whole fleet up there. It's not the fleet, but the, the port up there. And, and he brings him in and he, he hands him this communique that's just come over the highest frequency levels. And it says... Uh, to to U two thirty four safer trip safe trip home 
Ernst Geisman, assigned Ernst Geisman. Mm. Well, it's on the on the top frequency. It's on Fuhrer level kind of frequency, top secret uh, communications. And and the commander hands this to to Hirschfeld and says, "What is this about?" And Hirschfeld, in his book, he wrote two books, one in English, one in German. In both books, he says, he says, well, he told the commander that it was Geisman was a friend who was the radio officer in Lorient, and since Lorient had been, he makes a point in saying in the book, since Lorient had been captured, he wouldn't, nobody would be able to prove that it wasn't actually Geisman that did it, that sent the the note, which is an interesting comment to make, if it really was Geisman, yeah. you know. Mm. Uh, it's clear that it wasn't by how he couched his explanation to the commander that it wasn't Geisman that sent the note that it was there was something else that he was hiding something. Mm. Um, and then he goes back, and about the time he gets back, oh, I should t- uh, with the first one when it says you know wait for further orders from the Fuhrer bunker. Taylor, who's captain of the U-boat, calls General Kessler, who's the Air Force general, and says, what do you make of this? And Kessler says, uh, somebody from the from the top echelons is coming is probably the fat one, which is how he referred to Goering because he, he hated Goering. Yeah. Mm. Um, so they were afraid it was Goering. Yeah, they were afraid it was Goering, but both of them identified that somebody from the Fuhrer's bunker, Fuhrer's head, was coming. They realized that's what the syndicate Yeah, was, had sent and was trying to control the U-boat. Yeah. Okay, mm. and then we have this weird thing from Booby saying "safe trip home," which kind of doesn't make sense in the context of anything other than some kind of secret message mm. to, to the U-boat. And then shortly after, we get a, a note from Dernich saying, "U-234, don't take orders from anybody else except me. When you're ready to leave, leave." Because Dernich, no, no, it's not. Dernitz finds out somehow. We don't know how he found out. I presume the commander of the at Kirstensand, you know, signaled Dernitz and say, "Hey, we got some weird communications going to U two thirty four And Dernitz, he needs to keep chain of command of his U boat. So he says, "You know, failure, don't leave mm. <laughs> except on my orders." So um, he got he got contradictional orders here. He's got yeah, he's got a contradiction of orders, and one of them is his direct superior, and the other one's the head of the country, as far as he knows. <laughs> and so that's a pickle. That's a conflict, right? Mm. So and it's it's interesting because the radio man Hirschfeld makes a comment, editorializes, and he says, Failure says something to the effect of Leave it to Dernitz not to take orders from the top command. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so they identify, even though Dernitz doesn't say specifically, you know, that he's countermanding the Fuhrer bunker, they recognize that that's how this is to be interpreted. So how does the captain solve this problem? Well, the captain, he, he does both. <laughs> <laughs> Officially, at least. That's just weird. Yeah. So he's in Christensen. Yeah. yeah. And this is what's weird. He, he, uh, because we know he's in Christensen and not Bergen. We know he's in Christensen and not Bergen. It's all over in his logbooks and and uh, uh, communiques that are coming in or coming into Christensen, um, because they're not coming directly to the U-boat yet. They don't go to the U-boat until they're out to sea. They go. They just go to the communication center and twice a day, Herschel goes to communication center and picks up whatever. And let me shoot in here that Christensen is in the utmost south of Norway, so it would be a very short trip from Christensen to Hamburg or from Christensen to Kiel. Correct. Yeah. That's still that's still the ferry route today. Yeah, right. Whereas if it was in Bergen, it would be, first of all, more dangerous because you have England between Norway. You have to pass through 
right. all that uh, action area back then. And it's also all the way out to the North Sea and Iceland and Canada and all that stuff. Right. So, so it's, it's a significant strategic difference uh, where it is. Between the two locations, yeah. 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 So, so when I first uh, – I don't want to go through the whole story about the log because it's involved, but it's – No, it, it's complicated. But yeah. It's complicated, but it's very telling about how deceitful oh, yeah. failure was. And so he started his log, and on the day – over the day after he gets the note from from Dernit saying, you know, leave on my orders when you're ready to go, go. Um, Fader basically packs up the U-boat and leaves on April 16th. Mm. So, and the United States, they're intercepting the ultra, they have the ultra transcripts and they're intercepting and they got this order saying that, you know, U-234 just left port. On the which is Christian Sun at this point. Which is Christian Sun, yeah. Mm. And then two days later, they get, on the 18th, they get a, a another, intercept another order that says, this is Fader U-234 is leaving port. Again. Again. Even though it just left port a couple of Even minutes. though they just left port. And which port this time? Well, we didn't know. I didn't know at the time. Mm. I'm thinking, okay, what did he do? He told him he was leaving port and stayed in Christensen and then left two days later. Mm. I had I had ordered a copy of the log. Again, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but the the log that I was given actually ends. It starts with the beginning of the trip in Kiel and goes all the way through to April 18th. It, on April 18th, it ends. In the middle of the page, there's no more entries after April 18th. After Did you say Kiel now? That means before it went to Christensen. Yeah, when it, it was built in the Kiel shipyard and, and did mm. its first test there before it went to Christensen. And then, and then it was Christensen. Okay. Mm. And so he's left port twice, once on the 16th and once on the 18th. And on and in the log, it says he's uh, he stops recording any of the log on the 18th. It just ends. Yeah, there's huge gaps in the log, which is suspicious. Again, the absence yeah. evidence. Well, yeah, it's not just a huge gap. It, it ends on April 18th at noon, even though the boat keeps going, right? right. This particular log. Mm. So I... I I sent and I was able to track down again without going through all the details, but I was able to track down another dot log at the Bundes archive, which they sent to me, which when I opened it up, it was in a different format in a different handwriting and every, it was a Xerox copy. But the only thing that identified it as the log of U-234 was there was a handwritten in blue ink U-234 on the front. Mm. So, which is really weird. Sounds like a fabrication, if you ask me. Yeah, it's like, you know, you would think that if it was U-234's log, it would be, they would have copied the part that said it was U-234, but it's not anywhere in there that says it's actually U-234's log. Just the handwritten one on the photo. So where does Bergen come in? Then? So, so, and that's what I get to. I, uh, when I, th I finally get the log, that log, I start plotting the trip by what is in the log. And on April 18th, U-234 is right off of Bergen, okay? Huh. They, I, I'm pretty sure they went up to get the uranium there. I'm not sure. That might have been where they got the Well, according to, to uh, Hirschfeld, the uranium was loaded and labeled by the Japanese at Christensen. I think they went Okay. I think they went to to um, Bergen. I don't think they pick up passengers? To, no, to pick up communications from the Führerbunker. Ah. Okay? They didn't have... They didn't have the equipment they needed, I don't think, on on U-234 to communicate with the highest frequency Fuhrer bunker level stuff. They were ordered to leave. He's trying to fulfill Dernitz. And when I said he fulfilled both, I think that's what he did. He fulfilled Dernitz's command and left when he was told to leave. 
and but then he still he still went to the next port where he could get communications to see what was going on. Now I don't know what communications he got, but he continued on his trip from there. A couple of weird things happened. He's supposed to be racing to Japan, right? Mm. He's told to guard Ireland. Well, that's really weird if you're racing to Japan. And so as I plotted the trip, his U-boat is traveling for three weeks. It travels one and a half miles an hour. That's barely, that's not even as fast as a man walks. <laughs> so it's basically just resting there. It's just fast enough to maintain steerage on the boat. Okay. Yeah. So he's, he's resting. He's biding his time for some reason, which we don't know why. Okay. Mm. There's a whole bunch of other stuff in there about the logs. and People can read it in the book. We can't yeah. dwell too much over that. Ultimately, what happens on the last day of April, I want to say it's the last day of April, might have been the 1st of May. At the, at the same time, Bormann is escaping to Hamburg. to Hamburg from Berlin. The log shows that the U-boat um, turned east and went completely submerged. When it didn't need to, it hadn't been submerged when it was running all over in dangerous waters through uh, between Norway and, and England and through the Faroe Islands and all those. Well, they had a lot of high. They were really successful interdicting submarines there. They didn't have they weren't submerged there. In fact, they were they had they were spotted by fighter planes, allied fighter planes three times. And and the fighter planes would bear in on them and then all of a sudden unexpectedly turn away. There's an explanation for that, too. Yeah. So anyway, so the U-boat turns toward the east and goes submerged for six days, okay? Those six days... And, and east means direction of Germany. East, direction of Germany. Um, and all of a sudden, next thing we know, there's a huge U-boat in Hamburg picking up Bormann. Also, Field Marshal uh, Montgomery, Bernard Montgomery, said that Bormann was picked up by a U-boat. Or no, he's... Uh, anyway, I won't go there. Read it in the book. There's more details around that. I can't... Yeah. So then on May 12th, so the U-boat kind of disappears. The logbook is very deceitful. When you read the, compare the log to Hirschfeld's account, to Kessler's account, to direction finder accounts that the Allies had of the, of the radio intercepts, um, it's obvious that U-234 was doing something totally different than what it's written in the log, mm. shown in the log. So on May 12th, VE Day was May 8th, so Germany surrendered in Europe on May 8th. On May 12th, all of a sudden, U-234 radios in and says, on open frequencies, and says, I'm here, I'm ready to surrender. Um, Halifax says, you know, where are you? And he gives a position, which is when he gave the position, the direction finder reports that the Allies had said that he was very much east of that position. But he gives this position. He says he's traveling at eight knots in a certain direction that is supposed to be tracking on what's called the Great Circle, which is the pro proper way to navigate to Japan. <laughs> but he's not there and he's not doing that. So and Halifax says, OK, you're in our in our territorial waters. You need to come to Halifax and surrender to us. And Failer stalls. He just he, he acts dumb. They tell him to keep reporting. He doesn't report. A Canadian plane. Because he, he doesn't want to be captured by the Canadians right. at this point. Right. His, he's supposed to be captured by, he's supposed to surrender to the United States and only the United States. Now, he doesn't say this anywhere. Nobody says this anywhere. But the circumstantial evidence, and I lay it all out in the book, yeah. is clear that that's what he's supposed to be doing. Yeah. So he doesn't respond until 17 hours later. So it wasn't his intention that Halifax would pick up this. Right. No, it wasn't. He he didn't realize, I don't think he realized that 
even that the United States and England and Canada had divided the ocean and said, if you, have, right. you surrender here, you go here, if you surrender here, you go there. I don't think the Germans knew that. I think he assumed he was just going to be able to surrender to the U.S. Mm. And he was surprised when Halifax, you know, said, hey, okay, we come. So Halifax sends a plane out and, and the plane reports back that he's not going where he's supposed to be. He's not where he is, blah, blah, blah. So it's obvious that the Canadians are not in on this uh, deal that we're getting to later. Right. They're trying to get him. They send a picket of ships out to try and intercept him to get him. Unlike the English who didn't touch it uh, earlier. Right. The English keep their planes away. They're, you know, they're protecting this U-boat and letting it go wherever it wants to go for some reason, right? Mm. Fill in the blanks. <laughs> so then... Then um, the U-boat failure does report again 17 hours later, and it's in the wee hours of the morning, and he reports the same position he reported earlier, okay? Mm. But the direction finder shows that he's 350 miles, I think it, was, no, it wasn't that far, it was uh, like 120 miles from where he was. He's not going eight miles like he reported. Uh, even though he reported he was going eight miles, he still reported the same place that he was in. Didn't make sense. Mm. But the direction finders show that he is running a course at 16 knots, which is is 90 percent of the top speed of the U-boat, and he's running. So he's in a hurry. Here. He's in a hurry, and he's running west southwest. Which and when you draw a line back from the direction he's going back to the east, it's a little bit south of the English Channel in the Bay of Biscay. Mm. Okay, so. My theory is he went to Hamburg, he picked up Borman. Borman is known, and there's other research, other books as well as my own covers, is Borman is known to have been living right after the war with a guy named De Grill, Juan de Grill, in Spain. Mm. So I believe that U-234 picked him up in Hamburg. The English let him go through the English Channel, which is where the direction finder show he's coming from. He transferred uh, Borman and and probably Mueller, who was traveling with him, to DeGrell, and they went to Spain. And then he carried on and was going as fast as he could to fulfill the coordinates that he was reporting without actually being there so that he could surrender to the Americans. Well, he got faked out by the Canadians. Mm. The Americans, as soon as they figured out, as soon as they could, they, it took a while, but they got in position and they jammed the Canadians. They must have panicked. Yeah. Oh, my God. The Canadians yeah. are almost spoiling their whole plan here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what happened. And and so... So, so they jammed the signals? Yeah, the destroyer Sutton acts like it's going to be on the picket, gets on the south end of the picket with the Canadians and says, hey, I'm over here, I'll cover this end. But it goes out and it picks up, it, it gets out, it, it jams the signals and gets close enough to U-234 that they can communicate through Morse code by signal lights. Almost like if you've seen the hunt for Red October, yeah. I watched that and I thought, I've seen that before, I know where that is. <laughs> From. Maybe, yeah, who knows where they picked that up. But it's actually, it's in, Na Nazaro is the commander of the USS Sutton. It's in his in his report as well as in, in uh, Hirschfeld's book that they were communicated to, to, that they jammed the signals and they were communicated to the U-boat with uh, with lights and basically said, ignore Canada, follow us, we'll take you in. Yeah. And, and they surrendered the U-boat to uh, Portsmouth Naval Yard. Yeah, and we, when we had Harry Cooper on, he explained to us because um, this doctor, what's his name, the the scientist that was on board, uh, our uh, Heinz Schlicker. Yeah, and he Schlicker, Doctor Schlicker was a uh, part of his shark hunters uh, stuff. So, and uh, Farrell has made also a case for that. You know, Schlicker, uh -huh. the uranium, the parts, the plants, all this was a gift. 
right? A gift that the Manhattan Project needed in order to construct the first bomb that was used over Japan. Correct. And that's also your scenario. That's my Schlicker. Schlicker is an interesting guy, and and we can't go into him. We don't have time. Yeah, real quickly. Okay. He had knowledge and parts that allowed us to trigger the plutonium bomb. Right. Which we weren't able to do and wouldn't have been able to do without him. And Dr. Bergman. Yeah, so something about infrared triggers or something, right? Yeah, infrared proximity. Yeah, we covered that before in the show. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Bergen endorses that as well. So Okay. But the, the big question is, at this point, when they get this huge gift, where is Bormann? Borman at this time, I believe, is still in Spain with de Grel or somewhere close by. He's, he can't leave Europe yet because he's got to tie up all his ends. He's shipped everything out. He's got it in all these different things, and he needs to kind of be there to manage it, pull it back together. Yeah, yeah, of course. But, but in other words, for people who haven't read the book, the point then is that this U-boat, it went from Norway. It went to Hamburg. It picked up Borman and, and company. Then it went to Spain, mm-hmm. shipped off Borman and company, mm-hmm. and then it sent the loot uh, over to America. Isn't isn't that the scenario here then? That's the scenario, and that was that was the result of secret negotiations between General Wolf, who who I mentioned earlier, yeah. and Carl Dulles. General Wolf was the person who was the SS general responsible for building what the the Buna plant, in other words, the enrichment plant at Auschwitz. Who better? Who would know more? the value of what he's got to negotiate than Wolf. And now he's the plenipotentiary in Italy for maintaining the Southern Front. And the traditional history says that he's the one who negotiated the quote-unquote unconditional surrender with Dulles of Germany's Southern Front. Well, when you read the book, you'll see that there's a lot of other stuff that was going on that wasn't traditional. It's so interesting. And it's my strong belief. Um, Again, there's not a smoking gun, but there's enough circumstantial evidence. The preponderance of circumstantial evidence says that Wolf, on behalf of Borman, negotiated the nuclear, uh, well, all the technology on U-234, but primarily the, the nuclear power that would allow the United States to become the most powerful nation. Yeah. In exchange for Borman being able to remain in Europe and alive and eventually in South America as well, controlling that economy and bringing his Germany back into financial, economic power and control again. But are you sure? I mean, if you're Borman, and he's very sly, he doesn't have to say that he himself is going to be on board. All the Allies knows, there's that U-boat. The, the British uh, see it. It's on its way to get the uranium. So, therefore, the British get the orders, don't touch that U-boat. They don't know why, obviously. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't believe that. Uh, I believe that Borman was on it, but I don't believe he told anybody he was on it. Yeah. Exactly. So, the point is that he was piggybacking right. on the uranium. Right. And then you have the problem that instead of going directly from Hamburg to – that's probably why he lied about uh, where he was all the time because they had to stall for time, Right. So yeah, he had to offer time, and he, and he even tells Dernitz when he's leaving the bunker, he says, "Don't be surprised if you get communications from me from elsewhere." Right, and I think he even names possibly Hamburg because we're, our signals are being jammed, and so we have to send them to different places. But it's it's really just a cover for him to get out of town. And then he refuses. Dernitz is suspicious, and Dernitz wants to bring down Bormann because he knows that Bormann has already brought down Himmler and Goering, and no, no matter they didn't like him. So he's suspicious, you say, in the book, yes. and he wanted to get confirmed orders. But the problem is, yeah, 
he didn't mention the suicide of Hitler at this point. Right. He held it, and he didn't, and he didn't put on Hitler or anything. Right. And and you think that's because Hitler was dead, and Bormann couldn't say that because if he knew that Hitler was dead, he would have no reason to to support Bormann's effort. Correct. Exactly. But uh, another scenario that fits is that at this point Hitler has already fled, and he can't put Hitler on. And he he does say something strange. Uh, you say in the book uh, to Bormann does to Dönitz, and that is to help Hitler. But you argue that he can't send. He already sent a lot of people down there, yeah. and it doesn't make sense. He can't send. He can't send anymore. He's already no. he's already sent a battalion of cadets and, and some other guys, and there's just there's no sense in wasting more lives down there. Dönitz knows it. But it could. I mean, he couldn't say on air that Hitler is gone. So yeah, uh, and and if Hitler was saved, that would definitely not be a part of the Dulles deal. Sure. Yeah. But Bormann needs Hitler as a figurehead, as a protector, as an authority, because at this point, Bormann doesn't know. Because, okay, Bormann plans to get away. He plans all this money. But he has no guarantee that when he's down there, he'll maintain power without a Hitler that he can use as a figurehead. That's a big argument. And when we had Harry Cooper on, I'll just bring this on you now and I'll hear your take on it. Cooper argues that Bormann got away in a U-boat, much like you. In fact, he, his scenario yeah. and Farrell's scenario dovetails with you for Bormann. For Hitler, yeah, I think they bought it for me. <laughs> pardon? I think they both. Uh, uh, Doctor Farrell is she got it for me. Yeah, he uses you as a source. I think uh, Harry had another. There's a, a guy, a yes. Spaniard, Angel de, de Velasco. Don de, uh, yeah, yeah, Don de Velasco. Yeah, yeah, Don de Velasco. Uh, and he he had a story, and that worked into mine at one point, but I, it was outside of the scope, so I took it back out because. Yeah, I believe I've discovered a dovetail. Actually, yeah. because I had that in the back of my head. And his version is that not the eggs in the same basket, right? Yes. So what happens here is that he, <laughs> Stalin talks about three men and a woman. Well, that works twice. No wonder they picked up on it at least once because Kamler and Hitler gets away in a plane, uh, which is painted with Swedish paintings. And that plane goes straight to Norway. Hmm. Just like the U-boat. Now, here's the interesting thing. The reason is that they need a junker, these huge junker planes. I don't know the technical specs. You probably know it. But right. no. they need that. But that can fly actually all the way from Norway to South America without fueling. And it has room for a glocke. Uh-huh. Just incidentally, it has room for a glocke. It, 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 it's equivalent of the U-boat we're talking about, just in the air. And right. Hitler could never be in a U-boat because Hitler was a mountain man. Yeah. He got seasick. Yeah. It, it was just inconceivable. Yeah, but had, well, and so the scenario, so this a simple scenario here is that either uh, Hitler and Kamler, and Hitler, by the way, they, they did it against his will. Uh, this doctor you were talking about earlier? Yeah, this. Yeah, he doped down Hitler and they threw him into the plane. Yeah, that's the understanding I, I, I had. And I'm not totally unfamiliar with this, but I, this theory, and I'm not, and I don't disagree with it. I just haven't made a decision. No, no, that's fine. But people need to hear this, yeah. that it's a potential scenario here. Sure. And and so Bormann is so sly because either I forgot if if the plane went from Norway to Spain and then to Paraguay, but I believe it went directly to 
to Uruguay or Paraguay, I always mix them up. And then they rendezvoused later in Argentina. So, but pretty sure here that Bowman went on the U-boat from Spain all the way down to, to South America, separately from Hitler. And they had to do it this way. Sure. They couldn't go together because neither of them had any insurances. The, yeah. the U-boat could have been brought down sure. and the plane could have been brought it, down. It makes sense. Um, I, I, it makes sense. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that. And you know who the woman is? That's Eva Braun. You have the pilot, yeah. you have Kamler, you have Hitler, and you have Eva Braun. And we know that Kamler, we have reports of Kamler popping up with um, uh, Mueller in NOS of all places uh-huh. uh, in being introduced to McLullen uh, with uh, Kurt Debus as the middleman so that's one thing and we also know that Kamler was indispensable because of the secret weapons uh, research he, he was number three right. in, in a way after Bormann yeah. he knew everything so we have all these important people surviving we have Galen for the spy network we have Gestapo Müller for the spy network. We have Bormann as the power money guy. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Kamler as the head of all these scientists, probably having a deep hand into Operation Paperclip and all that. Mm-hmm. So we have all these central people. We have money. We have spy works. We have uh, uh, re- secret research. All of these things surviving, yeah. uh, probably. And that will lead us later to the Bormann Brotherhood. But I want to say to you, one little interesting observation, and we can't go too much into it because we have we are pressed for time. But I want to tell you one thing: you don't uh, you, you you have as an open question in your book concerning Longben. Uh huh. Yeah. An interesting thing uh, you may not know it, but you observe that there is this discrepancy between Longben and Longbein, right? And you speculate it can be the same person, and I confirm that uh, because. In Norwegian, Longbein means Longben. Nope. Longben is Norwegian for Longben. In fact, that's our word for Goofy in, in Disney, you know, Mickey Mouse's friend. Uh-huh. He's called Longben in Norwegian. Oh. So Longben is the way you would write it in Old Norwegian. Longben is the New Norwegian. The Germans have kept Longben, uh-huh. whereas Longben is the, is the High German or no, more the uh, Scandinavian version. Where, oh, the Scandinavian. Yeah. yeah, so it's the exact okay. same name. Well, that's just, I'm glad to hear that because, uh, it, you know, it, it ties together a, a somewhat of a loose end that I was trying to put together but didn't totally join, but it's it's nice to hear that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Great. So, so, so that was an interesting thing. So uh, I think here what we're dealing with here is that uh, uh, Bormann outsmarted Dönitz Mm-hmm. And like you said in your book uh, with Wolf, he outsmarted uh, Himmler. Right. And if he, uh, people won't understand it unless they've read your book, but if he could do these so detailed things, why couldn't he get Hitler out of there too? Because he needed Hitler, at least in the beginning he did. Yeah. And that, that may well be the case. Like I said, I decided to make it outside of the scope of what I was doing because it was just drawing too much time. And- Obviously, because at this point, we, we still believed Hitler's skull was real. Yeah. We, we, you know. So- well, that and also, uh, I'll be real. I will be totally honest with you, Al, in, in, in front of your audience. I, I made a very pragmatic decision at that point that I could make a good case for Borman and everything else in the book would, would hold together. If I tried to make a case for Hitler escaping, it was going to take me another two or three years. Right. And or else, if I tried to do it without having a solid case for him, it was going to undermine 
what I had done, which was valuable. And so I made a pragmatic decision that I was not going to, to follow that anymore. And I excised it from the book and left it alone. Right. Not having made a final decision, uh, whether I believe what Hitler's outcome was or not. And I, and I haven't made one to this day cause I haven't picked it up and finished the research to make that conclusion. Yeah. If you had included it back then, yeah. uh, it would actually have tainted. Yes. Uh, it's hard enough to make a case for Bormann. Right. Exactly. But you probably be marked as a conspiracy cook. If you mention Hitler at that point. Yeah. I, you know, I know I probably am now, but actually, no, no, I don't think so. I, I you know, it's been, uh, it's been rewarding to see how many people, if I ever, Literally and virtually, if I get a chance to stand up in front of an audience and go through the documentation, I'll, you know, every, I did it a lot. It speaks for itself, doesn't it? It speaks for itself. And when, when you get up and you have a standing room only and you sell every book you brought with you, you know that you sold them. You know that they want to find out more. And, and that was the experience I've had everywhere that I presented. Yeah. Totally agree. Now, one final point here. When I mention all this Hitler stuff, it's more to, to get you on board on this. Uh, <laughs> because, I because I see how it dovetails. Yeah. And you made a very important point in your book about Stalin going crazy, being angry because of these back dealings. We haven't had time to go into it, yeah. but it's it's Dulles and it's you know, basically Bormann and Dulles right. making deals here, right? And Stalin picking up on it. Right. But I want to introduce Exhibit C now, because Roosevelt, he denied to Stalin that they did backdoor dealings like this, because Stalin obviously demanded to be a part of it, right? Like you are. Yeah, he did. Uh, yeah, Roosevelt says, and I quote here from your book, I have complete confidence in General Eisenhower and know that he certainly would inform me before entering into any agreements with the Germans. He is instructed to demand and will demand unconditional surrender of enemy troops that may be defeated on his front. I am certain that there were no negotiations in Bern at any time, and I feel that your information to that effect must have come from German sources, which have made persistent efforts to come between us. That that means uh, USA and Soviet. Right. You know, the allies, they need to keep it together. Right. Finally, I would say this, uh, he continues. It would be one of the great tragedies of history if at the very moment of the victory, now within our grasp, such distrust, such lack of faith should prejudice the entire undertaking after the colossal losses of life, material and treasure involved. Frankly, I cannot avoid a feeling of bitter resentment towards your informers, whoever they are, for such vile misrepresentation of my actions or those of my trusted subordinates. And I, for one, believe uh, Roosevelt. I don't think he was in on this. I think this was done behind his back by Dulles. And here comes Exhibit C. Roosevelt dies very conveniently when it comes to timing. He dies at a point where if he had lived on, he would have known about Bormann or maybe even Hitler mm -hmm. because at some point everyone in the intelligence community knew about these things. So this is a conspiracy hypothesis, admittedly. Uh, there's no evidence here, but nobody has looked into it. But I think his timing for the death is much too convenient for such a huge power, power. Uh, you know, the power yeah. base of, of Dulles and Bormann. Yeah. Have you thought about that? I have not thought about that. And frankly, I'd probably have to digest it. As, as, if you've learned anything about me from my book, you, you probably learned that I want to see it in black and white and have the documentation. I, I, yeah. And like I mentioned, I think when we were talking even before we went on the air, uh, 
I try to I try to separate speculation from from when I actually have real evidence. Of course, um, of course. But we will be entertaining something here. I mean, it fits. Yeah, it, it's worth pursuing in the same way that when the, when the first scraps of evidence came to me about that the Germans had uh, uranium on this U-boat that was enriched, that right. you know, my first reaction was, "Hey, this is the most documented history in the world." In the world, I doubt this is correct but it ought to be looked at just to see and i looked and lo and behold i wrote a book about it uh, and this <laughs> you know I, i'm not saying that, that you're what you're saying uh, doesn't have the same kind of potential i'm just saying that it's not something that i've followed yet and i would not be surprised if validity is in it but but even if it's providence the timing yeah really saves yeah. uh adults us and bormans us and maybe even hitler's us yeah and I haven't seen that kind of synchronicity uh, until uh, the JFK situation here. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yep. So, so uh, there's no evidence we're speculating, but but I think that because you you have Roosevelt's words, he sincerely wanted. He was a left winger, actually. <laughs> he wanted peace with Soviet, mm -hmm. and we know that uh, CIA or OSS uh, and that faction, the the world uh, should probably say the Sullivan Cromwell. Uh, faction they did would have nothing of it they were actually closer to i would say the yeah they were with Patton. let's just keep the army here keep on going yeah 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 the the real enemy for them was stalin and soviet right yeah so um no bormann outmaneuvered himmler uh, he outmaneuvered Goering. Yeah, even outmaneuvered us. why couldn't why couldn't they also outmaneuver in cahoots with dolls sure roosevelt sure and when it comes to the Japanese samurais on board of the ship, you make a very interesting note in your book about how they allegedly suicided because they wouldn't want to lose face, which fits the profile, right? It does. But another possibility is that if this U-boat, if they thought this U-boat was going to Japan, and that would be in their interest, they don't want <laughs> Japan to sink, right? Right. It's pretty bothersome to have, you know, Right. To high ranking general. There's another scenario that's not that yeah. that I don't write in my book because I follow what documentation I have, but but it's not uh, off the charts to think that uh, failure and whoever failure had them taken care of. If that's where you're going. Exactly. That was where I was going. Right. Yeah. yeah that's a thought that's worth considering. But I don't. I tried to. Uh, like I said, I, I try to stay to the documentation. Uh, there's something's got to be pretty serious. The there's got to be some pretty serious evidence to for me to to suggest even an alternate uh, scenario, which isn't to say that that that's not possible. I just there's no evidence for for that. No, of course, and that's my prerogative as the interviewer here is to just throw out these wild cards. I don't have to. Sure. I don't have to accommodate these meticulous scholarly criteria that you do. So we appreciate that. Uh, I mean, it just goes to show that you're a serious researcher. You keep evidence-based. But I think it's fun to speculate. And the listeners also think it's fun to, to hear these scenarios, as long as they know that we yeah, speculate. I think I definitely think it's fun to speculate. I, I like to speculate. I just, I, as I think I've made clear, I like to identify. And we have done this throughout there. We identify when we're speculating, and, and that's fine. Yeah. And the other thing that I inferred but wasn't explicit about, uh, speculating is the beginning, is the start of trying to figure out, okay, do we have a path to go down that we should be pursuing? Right. So it's, it's healthy to do as long as we understand what it is and what it isn't. Yeah, 
everything begins with a hypothesis, and then we have exactly. to verify or, or, or reject. Right. Exactly. Mm. So, um, to wrap it up then, um, oh, there's another point I think we should mention, and that is that you, you say in your book how, how in South America, because we have to make a case now for Bormann, not just escaping, but making a power base in South America. And we don't have to go to you and your book, actually, with, with that scenario. But we can, we can take one step there. And you say that Latin America, uh, you know, they protested and said that, yeah. hey, you 234 was theft. Yeah. <laughs> Both Japan and South America were protesting. Right. It was supposed to go to Japan. Yeah. How on earth did it end up in America? That wasn't supposed to be the scenario. That's important. Right. Well, I think it's, uh, it's another evidence that, uh, of what really happened. Uh, the fact that, that some, some countries in South America were aware that there was something, that there was atomic components on this U-boat that was surrendered to America. You know, that happened somewhere, somehow. That It was... Essentially, it wasn't right in every detail, but essentially it was correct in in concept. And where did it come from if it wasn't true mm. and, and didn't come from Borman or somebody who was working with him, right? Yeah. There was somebody knew something down there. Yep, for sure. And, and he already has sent all, down all the money. Now, when it comes to Stevenson's book, it's called The Borman Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And I was asking you off air to elaborate uh, what he was referring to. I was asking if he was referring to Odessa. Yeah, and I think uh, I think Odessa is part of it. Odessa, and my perspective, and once again, I'm not an expert on Odessa, but my perspective is primarily that Odessa was, along with the, the uh, what do you call it, the spider, the spinner, the spinner, yeah, the spinner, um, was essentially the escape organization, and and also a organization for supporting Nazis after the war in hiding, mm. but it wasn't as extensive as I think Stevenson is alluding to when he talks about the Borman Brotherhood. I think the Borman Brotherhood ties to some of the stuff we were talking about when we were talking about the flight capital program and the economy going into all these these countries. The, uh, the, the Nazis, each of the Nazis from these corporations – the corporations had to take a bunch of Nazis in to control and, and monitor the uh, the assets of the economy that Borman hid in them. And so I think that Borman Brotherhood involves all of those people who are at that higher level, not just right. not just trying to survive, but rebuilding and growing that economy again. It's much mm. bigger and broader and more nebulous, even, frankly, than the Spina and, and the Odessa. Yeah, so so when you say uh, it's not that extensive, you're referring to Odessa. Odessa, yeah, I don't, and I don't mean extensive in terms of numbers. I mean extensive in terms of reach, tentacles, in terms of what its purpose was. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, because Odessa was for SS members. Yeah, its purpose was to get the SS guys out safely and keep them alive after the war. The Borman Brotherhood was to get the German economy, the essence of Germany, of what was left after the war, mm. into the rest of the world and help it get healthy and strong again. They're kind of running parallel paths, but one's dealing with a subset of humans and the other's dealing with the larger set of economic power. Right. Yeah. No, this is important. It's what we have referred to in this show as the Bormann Reich. Yeah. But I guess... It has no formal name, so Bormann Brotherhood works yeah. just as well as anything else. Yeah, works fine. 
I mean, Borman Reich works well, but I tend to think of Reich, and I think most people would probably think of it in terms of a military movement. Um, yeah. This is this is a little less. It, it's just as formidable, but less formed. <laughs> if yeah, I would say it's the it's the origin of the modern day multinational globalist cocktails. Yeah, yep. yeah, I think it probably is, and and it, it would be interesting to know how much of it is intact and in whose hands and what places. It's hard to believe that it just disintegrated. It was a powerful tool. Oh, no, no, there's even evidence for this. Yeah, so it would be interesting to know all the details. I'll suggest you two books you may enjoy. Uh, One is Peter Lavender's, uh, it's called Hitler Legacy. I've heard of Peter Lavender. Yeah, the Nazi cult in Diaspora. Diaspora. He, He makes a case for how... Uh, Levander's take is on all this, but he tracks down both players around the world in the post-war time, uh-huh. as well as the money aspect. And then you have Joseph Farrell's very new book, and it's less, I would say, less conspiratorial and, and some others uh, he has on this. And that's called The Third Way. And he basically, they both come from it from different angles, but they show how this huge corporate machine uh-huh. has developed from Bormann's. And, th- and that's the point here, because Hitler, he was an ideologist. Right. Bormann has derailed. And I think many, I picked up on many old time Nazis being bitter yeah. on Bormann. And I think one of the reasons they feel snubbed by him is that he didn't follow up the Fourth Reich right. dream. He didn't take Hitler's testament. Right. Yeah, he made it into a capitalist, fascist thing. Yeah, he made it his own way. Yeah. Yep. And and so that's why it's it's not actually the Fourth Reich or, or, or Hitler Reich. It's yeah. the Bormann Reich, so to speak. Yep, I understand. Yeah, and and that's what we want to try to to continue focusing on in in this thread we're doing here. Uh, they, that this show is a very important part of. Because if we can't make a case for Bormann surviving, we can't uh, make a case for yeah, an intentional right. uh, development from all these loot and, and cartels, Mercedes-Benz, all this stuff. Yeah. Right. Well, I think we've made the case. I think uh, yeah. I think yeah. it's just up to people to, to get it, to read it for themselves, embrace it uh, if they believe it, and, and pass it on to as many people as we can so that the uh, substance of the wave – of the truth that is carried in it will be forced to uh, upon uh, the rest of the world. They'll have to look at it and deal with it. They can't just keep turning their head and ignoring it. Exactly. And that's what your predecessors, Manning and, and uh, Ferrego and Stevenson. Yeah. 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 They tried to do that. And, and that's also what your heirs, I would say then, uh, Lavanda and, and Farrell is trying to do with, right. with their new books. And I'd say uh, when it comes to Cooper, he's made also a very valuable contribution here in terms of getting, pri- he's like you, he gets primary research done. Yeah. Uh, but his focus has been on, on a Hitler survival. Yeah, I, and I, I understand that. He just started. He believed it, but he didn't. He hadn't really kind of grabbed it with both hands and started running with it until after I. I want to say parted ways. We didn't really part ways. I think we were fine. If I were to call him up today, I think he'd be. We we both have a good chat. But we just kind of. I got busy with my book, and after that was doing following that process, is when he actually started grabbing with both hands and getting his teeth into the Hitler thing, which I'm glad he did. Yeah. Um, I just haven't followed up on it because, like I said, I just kind of went into the wilderness and tried to 
to heal some family things and re-grab my life back from this book. No, and like I said, uh, I think it was prudent of you because back at that time, uh, it was like an Elvis sighting, right? Now we have forensic evidence. Now now there's nothing left backing up the, the old story. Uh, mainstream. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you have these shows like Hunting Hitler. Yeah. I mean, you see who who leads that show, right? It's the top guy in CIA, the guy that uh, was outed by the Bush uh, administration. What was his face? Uh-huh. Yeah, very famous. And he's got on board uh, Gerard Williams. So these, now you can even talk about the Hitler survival with a straight face without losing your scholarly credentials. But back when you yeah, were struggling with this, you couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was hard enough to do the Bowman thing. You saw what happened yeah. to your predecessors. Uh, yeah, Ferrego, they yeah. vivisected him. <laughs> Slaughtered him. Yeah, that was that was sad. Yeah, and that was so early on that the Bowman tentacle was still having a reach. Right. I think Bowman could have lived to the 80s, actually. What do you think? I think it's possible. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's possible. I would have put him in his, in his uh, what, he was 45 or 46 at the end of the war. Um, yeah, he was born around the uh, turn of the century, right? Right around the turn of the Yeah, I'm trying to remember when. I don't I don't have all those details. He might have been a little... He actually, he might have been in his early 50s. Mm. I don't think he was that much. I think he was a little younger than Hitler by a couple of years. And Hitler was 54, I think, when he died. Or when he... When, <laughs> when his double died, <laughs> so, you mean? <laughs> yeah. When, when we lost track, yeah. let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so... But it, it's easy to, I mean, he was, from what I understand, physically, even though he was not a particularly handsome man, he wasn't well built in the terms of having a, a, a handsome body. From what I understand, he was, he had stamina that wouldn't quit and he was very strong physically uh, and very healthy. So it's not hard to believe that he, mm. he didn't survive uh, into his 80s or 90s easily. Have you heard the reports from South America regarding Bowman, for instance, his lovers and, and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I've heard a lot of that. There's there's a lot of good reports. I, I just kind of – there are so many reports that uh, that I couldn't put them all in the book. I just kind of encapsulated them into a, a sentence or two saying over 50 – you know, reports that at least I've been. But you did make notice of uh, some of a few that, like, yeah, yeah. There, there was one or two that were quite compelling and had no. You know, some of them you can. There's potential for agendas to, for people to have and stuff like that. But there's two or three of them that just have no reason to be there except for that they're the truth. You know, yeah. People documented what they saw or lived through. So. And it looks to me uh, that the rise of Perón was much Bowman's work as anything else, finance. And- yeah, I, I would think so. Again, it's outside of the scope of my work. I don't know that his, let's say his original rise, I would say that the strength and the power that he came to had the potential, well, it was a lot yeah. triggered by Bowman because Bowman put so much into supporting him financially and, and they kind of helped each other out. Mm. on the economic side of things and that definitely gave Perón some strength and power and legs that I don't think he would have had otherwise he'd have just been a a, a kind of a weak tin pot dictator instead of a strong one <laughs> yeah yeah like many others who, yeah. who didn't have that backing right instead Argentina became this paradise down there 
It did. I have to be careful what I say about Argentina. I have a son-in-law that's from Argentina, so <laughs> <laughs> if he hears No, but they are they are aware of these things. They've always believed these things. Oh yeah. When I told him what my book was about, he was like, Oh yeah, everybody knows that. Everybody in Argentina knows that. <laughs> exactly. But to him it's it was fact. There was no question and still is you, you know. No, it's just in, in, in the sphere of the allies, uh, in the aftermath of the war that this is decided to be a non fact. Right. Yep. And and they don't. Uh, I'm lamenting a little bit that we couldn't go into. You have some very exciting stuff here about the shenanigans going on at the end there with the Operation Sunrise and oh yeah, all this stuff, especially involving the Allies uh, and the OSS and, and all this, because it's a big part of this story too. Yeah, the people can. Good thing we have saved a lot for for those who actually will read the book then. Yeah, if people think this interview covered it all, they no, we can't do it. They may as well get the book because there's a whole lot more, and it it's even it's more fascinating and and makes a stronger story even than what we've covered. <clears throat> yeah, and when they get the book, they can also see how every turn and twist is documented. You always yeah. try to rest upon backing. Uh, you you are very restricted with with uh, your hypothesis and speculation, but if you do lay them out, you are very clear. Yeah, I try to be very careful. My main focus, because I was the first one, as far as I knew, and as far as I know, I was the first one revealing much of this. Mm. I felt I had a responsibility to to be apolitical about it, to be get it as accurate as I possibly could. Mm. And to, and in and so doing to be as conservative as I could and still tell a compelling story. There are other things I could have added and put in there, but they weren't necessarily speculation. But they wouldn't have given a color that would have helped the process, even though they were they were evidence in support of it. Mm. So the the important thing was to get the fundamentals of the story out so it could be put up for critical review uh, and accepted for what it is, what it ought to be, and then. Once that's in hand, those of us who live in democratic states and have leaders who are where the people are responsible for uh, electing leaders and keeping our leaders engaged and doing the right thing, mm-hmm. uh, the, they can discuss policy and whether the right thing was done so that when we look in the future, they can they'll have more evidence and more information as to what to do going forward with these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, this should be this should be a new uh, History Channel show. <laughs> oh, by the way, we ought to mention the title of the book. We haven't even done that. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you better. You so it's to... called. Go ahead. Yes. No. Yeah. It is called Critical Mass: How Nazi Germany Surrendered Enriched Uranium for the United States Atomic Bomb. Why do you call it Critical Mass? Just so. People um, you know, as I look back and see how many titles there are out there called Critical Mass, I probably should have thought of come up with a different one. But at the time, it related and was fundamentally about nuclear weapons and the issue, the issue of critical mass, not only as part of a nuclear explosion, but also, and I, I allude to this, historically, the beginning of the nuclear age and the use of the first nuclear weapons was a critical mass in humanity when our own density as a species yeah. <laughs> kind of fell upon us as in this world war and compressed us into this explosion into a new world. And so there, it's kind of a illusion. I can't remember the term, but 
you know, it has a double meaning. It's a double entendre that talks about the specifics about the technicality of critical mass and a nuclear weapon, and also how we are acting or have acted as the human family as we've tried to mm. make this world be what different people want it to be, yeah. and how good or bad we, how well or poorly we've done that. Yeah, thank you for saying that because uh, this makes a full circle. Because in the beginning, in part one. Mm-hmm. I announced that this was one of the most important parts of history, especially this U-boat. Mm-hmm. And so the point being then that if that U-boat had gone to Japan as it was supposed to, the stuff wouldn't have developed like it did. Yeah. Yep. There would have been a lot that could have done two or three different things primarily and other spin-offs of those. Yeah. Uh, like a postscript uh, elaborates, or the epilogue, I should say, in the book. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so this U-boat is probably one of the most important terms of the war, and not just in terms of the atomic bomb, but also the other atom bomb, namely Bowman's survival and how he built up this globalist empire. Oh, absolutely. Which it looks like. The atomic bomb, in my mind, was was a material, a media for power mm. and whoever had it whoever negotiated to whoever was going to have the power and that that defines who and how our world went forward from that point on point onward mm. if that makes sense yeah and in a way it's like we have to choose between <laughs> a quick deterioration, <laughs> deterioration yeah. or a long term because the deal we got was okay you get this terrible weapon mm-hmm. but this other terrible weapon will now bide its time and build itself up yeah <laughs> namely Bowman. <laughs> so yeah. it, it was a deal with the devil where we it's a, it's a loose loose in a way <laughs> yeah it, you know, it, you see it, what i mean yeah we made a deal with the devil and you know we just we're riding it out now and, yeah. uh, but it, it could have been a lot worse uh, if soviet union would have got it if uh, if japan would have got it and, and japan and the nazi stayed in power yeah. it could have been a lot worse which was your point of saying whether it was a, a fast death or a slow death i guess mm. demise yeah. death is too strong demise yeah. demise is a better word yeah, yeah. but oh, oh one last thing where, where can they get this book now um, it, you can get it on most of the, the major websites, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. My preference is that you go straight to Trine Day and order it from Trine Day. They've been so good to me. And they're the ones who, when Dr. Farrell said, hey, you should take it to Trine Day, I think they would mm-hmm. love to do this. Mm-hmm. And Chris Milligan over there, the publisher, said, yeah, we're going to do it. And he did it off cycle. He said, we're not taking books right now. And I convinced him to do it. So I really feel like they deserve some reward for their putting their money where their mouth is and doing it. Um, the one thing I will say, if you're going on Amazon, wherever you go, you need to put in third edition because most, if you just put in critical mass or you just put in your, my my name, you're probably going to get taken to a a page that has the first or second edition. And those, as we talked about earlier, are quite expensive and which I'm not telling you not to do that if that's not what you want to do. But if you just want to get the book to read at a reasonable cost, Ask for Critical Mass 3rd Edition or Carter Heydrich 3rd Edition in, in your search, and it should bring up the 3rd Edition. Which is-, is, it, is it revised and updated, or is it uh, just a, a blueprint? No, it's it's revised and updated. Uh, it includes uh, a stronger uh, – it includes, number one, the discovery of the 126,000 barrels of spent uranium, mm. which is the key thing. But it also includes some – 
greater. There were some mistakes in the other ones that were made, and they're addressed. There haven't been very many reviews that have been negative that had validity to them. The one or two that have were reviews of the early editions that criticized some of the technology as I described it, which I didn't have right, admittedly. It doesn't materially change the conclusions, but it casts aspersions on the on the research. And so when Dr. Bergen vetted it for me, I was able to update and correct in the third edition, as well as uh, add some better interpretations. I think I mentioned in the pre-airing that there were times when it took me years to realize that I hadn't made the right conclusion or I hadn't made a strong enough conclusion or I hadn't asked the right question. Mm. And it became clear to me. And so I I went back and made some of those corrections and and just made it more solid. And uh, the other ones were solid. And like I said, there's nothing material that that changes any of the conclusions. But the third edition has the addition of the, the found uranium waste, which is a smoking gun that says that I'm right. Yeah. And it has a strong endorsement, the forward by Dr. Bergman, who's the director of the nuclear weapons program at Los Alamos. Hard to get that kind of evidence, that kind of strength in a book like this. Yeah, not only him. Like I said, there's a lot of people here who endorses it, yeah. praises it. Yeah, there are several. A former uh, instructor at, at the United States Military Academy at West Point, he was a nuclear engineering instructor. There's some high class, uh, world class. Mm. former spokesman for the UN, you know, mm. if you read the book, sure. it's, it tells the story and it's strong. It speaks for itself. And there you have it, folks. Not as rare anymore. <laughs> you don't have to broke yourself. And uh, why wouldn't, why would you want the first or the second edition when this is updated anyway? So out and get it published by Trine Day and we'll put up links. It's the only book you've, uh, you've published, right? Uh, yeah. Three editions, but it's the only one I published. Yeah, yeah but you spent <laughs> half of a lifetime on half it. Half so. of my life on it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Better be uh, well. It's probably it's probably going to sail up there gradually. Yeah, so. that's that's what it's doing so far, from what I can tell. Yeah, excellent. Let's hope this uh, contributed to that. I hope so. Let's keep the momentum going. Yeah. yeah. So, so thank, thank you a lot for coming on, uh, Carter. Thank you very much, Al. I appreciate it. It's been an honor and also an enjoyable evening. Same here. So you've been listening to an interview with Carter Heydrich based upon his book, Critical Moss. As a part of our series of interviews with scholarly researchers regarding the power players on the global scene, of which the most underestimated, obscure and virtually unknown is Martin Bowman and his worldwide influential heritage still haunting us to this very day. Admittedly, this is an explosive and probably risky subject, and even the more important of focusing upon it. If you'd followed us down this avenue by listening to the programs prior to and following this, you know that it is not imaginary conspiracy theories, but evidence-based facts that explains in a sober and logical, I might add, way the current corporocracy that most of the world has delved in, into and is suffering under. 
Do join us further down this avenue in future programs, as you can be certain that as long as we live and breathe, we will not let go of this important topic, but keep chasing it in its natural unfoldment up until our modern day. Which means that, yes, we will soon enough close up on Bormann's post-war crimes, trying to fill in all the blanks. Become a freedom and truth warrior. Support the fight against globalist corporatism by helping spread our shows and plug them to people you think are aware enough to find interest in them. You can also help our thankless task by donating. And if you already have, remember that you can sign up at our website, which will give you access to many more shows not yet published, plus bonus clips, forum talks with questions and comments from our dear listeners. Yeah, that's you. And where you also can pitch questions and comments to our guests. When you sign up, your admission will proceed much faster if you also send us a brief mail informing us that you have donated and applied pending approval. You do not need to donate regularly in order to join our website. Any donation, big or small, once or steadily, opens the door. That said, you will help us more out with a recurring modest donation than a single big one. Now, let me quote to you a few words of the brown eminence that was referred to by his party fellows as Die Schweine and later became the spider of Die Spinne that eventually grew into a modern-day cartel. This earth is not a fairyland but a struggle for life. Perfectly natural and therefore extremely harsh. I do my very utmost to live and act in such a manner that the Führer should remain satisfied with me. But whether I shall always be able to cope with the tasks entrusted to me in the future as well is an open question. Films and records, music, books and buildings show clearly how vigorously a man's life and work go on after his death. Whether we feel it or not, whether we are aware of the individual names or not, there is no such thing as death, according to our view. With these still valid words in mind, we part for now. But we'll soon be back with more mind blows. Thanks to you, our listeners, and especially those of you who contribute. We are only accountable to you and so free to take on whatever controversy needed for the sake of truth. In this, today, as always, your host has been Al. And with my team of good helpers, bid you sincere regards. Be seeing you. Who is number one?